Chapter 17 of The Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adele de Pignaroles. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantyne. Chapter 17 Gertie is mysteriously cared for. Sam Natley dines under difficulties in connection with the block system. One day, not long after the half-yearly meeting described in the last chapter, Mrs. Merritt, being at the time engaged with the baby, received a visit from an elderly gentleman, who introduced himself as a lawyer, and said that he had been sent by a client to make a proposal to her. Of course, he said with a bland smile, I do not refer to a matrimonial proposal. Mrs. Merritt felt and looked surprised, but waited for more in silence. To come to the point at once, continued the elderly gentleman my client who is rather eccentric has taken a great fancy it seems to your little daughter gertrude gertie he calls her and is desirous of giving her a good education if you had no objection mrs merritt being under the impression that this would involve gertie's being taken away from her and put into a boarding school at once looked her objection so plainly that her visitor hastened to explain that his client did not wish gertie to quit her parents house but merely to go for a few hours each day to the residence of a teacher in the neighbourhood, a governess, whom he should provide. This altered the case so much that Mrs. Merritt expressed herself quite ready to allow Gertie to undergo that amount of education, and hoped it would do her good, though, for her part, she did not believe in education herself, seeing that she had got on in life perfectly well without it. She also expressed some curiosity to know who was so good as to take such an interest in her child. That, my good woman, I cannot tell, for two reasons. First, because my client has enjoined me to give no information whatever about him, and secondly, because I do not myself know his name, his business with me having been transacted through a young friend of mine, who is also a friend of his. All I can say is that his intentions towards your child are purely philanthropic, and the teacher whom he shall select will not be appointed unless you approve. That teacher, I may tell you, is Miss Tipps. "'What? Miss Netta teach my Gertie?' exclaimed Mrs. Merritt in great surprise. "'Never!' "'My good woman,' said the lawyer, with a perplexed look, "'what is your objection to Miss Tipps?' "'Objection? I've no objection to Miss Netta, but she will have some objection to me and Gertie.' "'I thought,' said the lawyer, "'that Miss Tipps had already taught your child, to some extent, gratuitously.' "'So she has. God bless her. But that was in the Sunday school.' where she teaches a number of poor people's children for the sake of our dear Lord. But that is a very different thing from giving ordinary schooling to my Gertie. That may be, rejoined the lawyer, but you are aware that Miss Tipps already teaches in order to increase her mother's small income, and she will probably be glad to get another pupil. We mean to pay her well for this service, and I suppose that if she has no objection, you will have none. Certainly not replied mrs merritt with much emphasis whenever mrs merritt said anything with unusual emphasis baby merritt entertained the unalterable conviction that he was being scolded no sooner therefore did he observe the well-known look and hear the familiar tones than he opened wide his mouth and howled with injured feelings at the same moment a train rushed past like an average earthquake and in the midst of this the man of law rose and saying that he would communicate with mrs merritt soon took his leave Next evening, Miss Tipps was seated at tea with Netta, planning with anxious care how to make the two ends meet 
but apparently without much success. "'It is dreadful, Netta,' said Miss Tipps. "'I was never before brought to this condition.' "'It is very dreadful,' responded Netta, "'but that renders it all the more imperative that we should take some decided step towards the payment of our debt.' "'Yes, the liquidation of our debt,' said Mrs. Tipps, nodding slowly. "'That was your term your dear father was wont to use.' "'You know, Mamma, at the worst we can sell our furniture, or part of it, and pay them off, and then, with a system of rigid economy—' A postman's knock cut short the sentence, and in a few seconds Mrs. Derby, careworn and subdued, presented a letter to her mistress and retired. "'My, my dear!' exclaimed Mrs. Tipps. "'This is positively miraculous. Here is a cheque for fifty pounds, and—but read it yourself.' Netta seized the letter and read it aloud. It ran thus. "'Clarendon Hotel, London.' Dear Madame, there is a little girl living in your neighbourhood, in whose father I have a deep interest. I am particularly anxious to give this child, Gertrude Merritt by name, a good plain education. Understanding that your daughter has had considerable experience in teaching the young, and is, or has been, engaged in tuition, I venture to propose that she should undertake the training of this child, who will attend at your daughter's residence for that purpose at any hours you may deem most suitable. In the belief that your daughter will have no objection to accept of this trust, I enclose a cheque for fifty pounds, the first year's salary in advance. I am, dear madame, your very obedient servant, Samuel Tuft. Although the above can scarcely be considered a brilliant achievement of Edwin Gerwood's, it nevertheless accomplished its purpose, for the letter was, in all respects, so very unlike Captain Lee that neither Mrs. Tipps nor her daughter suspected him for an instant. On the contrary, they took it in good faith. Netta wrote a reply by return of post, agreeing to the proposal, and on the day following began her pleasant task, to the inexpressible delight of Gertie, who joyfully, on any terms whatever, would have been Netta's slave, not to mention pupil. A considerable time after this happy arrangement had been made, Mrs. Derby, in a moment of confidential weakness, related to little Gertie the circumstances attending the loss of her diamond ring. Gertie, on returning home, communicated the matter to Lou, and gave it as her opinion that it was a pity such a valuable ring had been lost. "'Couldn't father find out about it somehow?' she asked with a hopeful look, hopeful because she believed her father capable of doing anything he chose to set his mind to. "'Perhaps he could, but he won't be home tonight,' replied Lou, thoughtfully. "'I think Sam Natley could tell us how to find it. Suppose I go and ask him.' Lou laughed, and said she thought Sam couldn't help them much. The child was, however, a resolute little thing, and, having taken up the idea, determined to go and see Sam forthwith, as he was on duty not far from John Merritt's cottage. Sam had recently been advanced from the position of a porter to the responsible office of a signalman. The great sin he had committed in going to sleep in a first-class carriage, when unable to keep his eyes open, had been forgiven, partly because it was his first offence, partly because of the good and opportune service he had rendered on the day of the attempted robbery, and partly on account of his being one of the steadiest and most intelligent men on the line. Sam's wife, under the care of Mrs. Tipps and Mrs. Derby, had made a marvelous recovery, and Sam's gratitude knew no bounds. Mrs. Tipps happened to refer to him one day when conversing with Captain Lee, and the latter was much pleased to discover that the man in whom Mrs. Tipps felt so much interest was the same man who had come to his help in the outer of his extremities. He therefore made inquiry about him of the station-master at Clatterby. That gentleman said that Sam was a first-rate man, a stout, 
hard-working, modest fellow, besides being remarkably intelligent, and clear-headed and cool, especially in the midst of danger, as had been exemplified more than once in cases of accident at the station, in addition to which Sam was a confirmed abstainer from strong drink. All these facts were remembered, and when the block system of signaling was introduced on that part of the line, Sam was made a signalman. The scene of his new labors was an elevated box at the side of the line, not far from Gertie's home. As this box was rather curious, we shall describe it. It was a huge square sentry box, with three of its sides composed of windows. These commanded a view of the line in all directions. On the fourth side of the box hung a timepiece and a framed copy of signal regulations. There was a diminutive stove in one corner, and a chest in another. In front of the box facing the clock were two telegraphic instruments, and a row of eight or ten long iron levers, which very much resembled a row of muskets in a rack. These levers were formidable instruments in aspect and fact, for they not only cost them a pretty strong effort to move them, but they moved points and signals, on the correct and prompt movements of which depended the safety of the line and the lives of human beings. Just before little Gertie reached the station, Sam happened to be engaged in attempting to take his dinner. We use the word attempting advisedly, because our signalman had not the ghost of a chance to sit down, as ordinary mortals do, and take his dinner with any degree of certainty. He took it, as it were, disjointedly in the midst of alarms. That the reader may understand why, we must observe that the block system of signaling, which had recently been introduced on part of the line, necessitated constant attention, and a series of acts which gave the signalman no rest during certain periods of his watch for more than two minutes at a time, if so long. The block system is the method of protecting trains by blocking the line, that is, forbidding the advance of trains until the line is clear, thus securing an interval of space between trains, instead of the older and more common method of an interval of time. The chief objection to the latter system is this, that one accident is apt to cause another. Suppose a train dispatched from a station, an interval of say quarter of an hour allowed, and then another sent off. If the first train should break down, there is some chance of the second train overtaking and running into it. With the block system this is impossible. For instance, a train starts from any station, say A, and has to run past stations B and C. The instant it starts, the signalman at A rings a telegraphic bell to attract B's attention. At the same time, he indicates on another telegraphic instrument, train on line, locks his instruments in that position, and puts up the stop signal, or blocks the line. B replies, acknowledging the signal, and telegraphs to C to be ready. The moment the train passes station he telegraphs to see train on line and blocks that part of the line with the semaphore stop as a had done he also telegraphs back to a line clear whereupon a lets a second train on if one is ready very soon c sends line clear to b whereupon b is prepared to let on that second train when it comes up and so ad infinitum the signals right and left are invariably repeated so that there is no chance of mistake through the failure of the telegraph instruments because if any of these should fail, the want of a reply would at once induce a telegram through the speaking instrument with which each station is furnished, and which is similar to the telegraph instruments used at most railway stations, and the line would remain blocked till a satisfactory answer set it free. The working of the semaphore signals, which are familiar to most people as tall posts with projecting movable arms, is accomplished by the mechanical action of the levers before mentioned. 
There are two distant signals and one home signal to be worked by each man. Besides these, there are levers for working the various points around the station which lead to sidings, and when these levers are in action, i.e., placed for the shunting of a goods train, they self-lock the levers that block the line, so that while this operation of shunting, which just means shoving a train to one side out of the way, is going on, the signalman could not make the mistake of letting a train pass the distant signal. The thing is rendered impossible. From this it will be seen that the signalman has entire control of the line, and if we consider that shunting of wagons, carriages, and trains is a pretty constant and lively operation at some stations, we can easily conceive that the office of signalman can only be filled by a very able and trustworthy man. As we have said, just before Gertie's arrival Sam Natley chanced to be attempting to dine. The telegraph needles pointed to line clear on both sides of him. Dinner consisted of a sort of Irish stew cooked in a little square iron pan fitted into the small stove. Being a placid, good-humoured man, not easily thrown off his balance either mentally or physically, Sam smiled smartly to himself as he put the first bit of meat into his mouth. He thought of his wife, wished that she was there to assist in the eating of it, and shut his lips on the savoury morsel. A piece of potato was arrested by the sharp telegraph bell, one beat of warning. The potato followed the meat as he was in the act of rising. Sam touched his telegraph bell in reply to his signal friend on the right, and train on line was marked by a telegraphic needle pointing to these words. As the train was yet a great way off, at least as to distance, he sat down again and disposed of bit number two. Number three followed, and he had made some approach to engulfing number four when a shrill whistle struck his ear. Up he sprang, glanced at the timepiece, wiped his mouth, and went to the levers. He touched his bell. A single note of warning to his single friend on the left and received a reply, one beat, meaning, ready. The train appeared, came up like a rocket, and went past like a thunderbolt. When Sam saw its red tail light and thus knew that all the train was there, that none of the tail carriages or trucks had broken loose and had been left behind, he gave a mighty pull to one of the levers, which turned up the arms of his distant signal and thus blocked the line to all other trains. The needle was now pegged down, or fixed at, train on line, so that there could be no mistake about it and no trusting to memory. Having accomplished this, he went to a large book which lay open on a desk in the corner, glanced at the timepiece, recorded the passage of the train, a passenger one, and once more sat down to dinner. The distance between his station and the next to the left was somewhat greater than that on the right, so that at least three mouthfuls in succession of the Irish stew were disposed of before the wicked little bell summoned him again. He rose as before with alacrity, rung his bell in reply, and unstopped his needle. The friend on his left at once pointed it to line clear, whereupon Sam went again to his levers and lowered the obstructing arms on his right. Having thus a clear line on right and left, he sat down for the third time to dinner, with a clear head and a clear conscience. But he was interrupted sooner than before. Indeed, he had barely got one mouthful deposited when he was rung up by the friend on his right, with two beats of the bell, to pass a heavy goods train, which, with something like the impatience of stout people in crossing dangerous roads, was anxious to get on and out of the way as fast as possible, for it knew that a limited mail was tearing after it, at a fearfully unlimited pace. Sam knew this, too. Indeed, he knew, and was bound to know, every train that had to pass that station up and down during his period of duty. He therefore replied, sat down, had a bite or two, and sprang up when the whistle of the train was audible. There was longer delay this time, for the goods train had to stop and be shunted at the station. Moreover, another goods train, 
that had quietly but impatiently been biding its time in a siding, thought it would try to take advantage of this opportunity, and gave an impatient whistle. Sam opened one of his sliding windows and looked out. "'Couldn't you let me shunt a truck over to the other side now, Sam?' asked the driver remonstrantly. Sam glanced at his timepiece with an earnest, thoughtful look and said, "'Well, yes, but look sharp.' He had already pulled the lever of the home signal, and now, with two mighty pulls, blocked both up and down lines with the distant signals. At the same time he pulled other levers and shifted the points, so as to let the plethoric goods train just arrive and the goods train in waiting perform their respective evolutions. It ne required nearly all Sam's strength to pull over several of those levers, because, besides being somewhat heavy to work, even at their best, several of them had got slightly out of order, wanted oiling, perhaps. It was quite evident to the meanest capacity that there was room for improvement in this department of the Grand National Trunk Railway. In performing this last operation, Sam locked all the semaphores, and so rendered his part of the line absolutely impregnable. There was so much bizarre action and whistling here, and such puffing and backing and pushing on the part of the engines, that a superficial observer might have supposed that there was a great deal of movement and confusion to no purpose but we need scarcely say that such was not the case. Several trucks of goods were dropped by both trains, to be carried on by other trains, and several trucks that had been left by other trains were taken up, and thus in a few minutes a part of the enormous traffic of the line was assorted. Sam had judged his time well. He had got a good piece of work advanced, and both trains well out of the way, just before the bell again intimated the approach of the limited mail. He replied, set the line free, booked the passage of the goods train, and sat down once more to dinner, just as the door of his box opened and the pretty face of Gertie peeped in. We are not sure that such a visit would be permitted in these days of stringent rules. At that time they may not have been very particular as to visitors, or perhaps Gertie, being one of themselves, as it were, was privileged. Be this as it may, there she was with a laughing face. May I come in, Sam? May a cherub from the skies come in? Yes, replied Sam rising and lifting Gertie in his strong arms until he could print a kiss on her forehead without stooping. All well at home, Gertie? Very well, thank you. We expect father home to tea. I know that, said Sam, sitting down at his small table and attempting dinner once again. How do you know that? asked Gertie in surprise. Because I've got to pass him up with the express in half an hour, replied Sam, with his mouth full. And, of course, he don't prefer taking his tea on the lightning with his mate Bill Garvey, when he got a chance of taking it with his wife and a little angel like you. I wish you'd not talk nonsense, Sam, remonstrated Gertie with a serious look. That ain't nonsense, said Sam, stoutly. Yes, it is, said Gertie. You know angels are good. Well, and ain't you good? demanded the signalman, filling his mouth with a potato. Mother says I am, and I feel as if I was, replied Gertie with much simplicity. But you know angels are very, very good, and of course I'm not near so good as them. You are, said Sam, with an obstinate snap at a piece of meat. You're better than any of them. You only want wings to be complete. Gertie laughed, and then remarked that Sam dined late, to which Sam replied that he did, that he preferred it, and that he didn't see why gentlefolks should have that, all, that sort of fun to himself. What's that? exclaimed Gertie, as Sam dropped his knife and fork, rang his electric bell, and laid hold of a lever. The limited mail, my dear, said Sam, as the train rushed by. 
"'Oh, how it shakes the house! I wonder it don't fall!' exclaimed the child. "'It's made to be well shaken, like a bottle of bad physic,' replied Sam, as he went through the various processes already described, before sitting down to finish his oft-interrupted meal. "'Do you always take your dinner in that uncomfortable way?' asked Gertie, sitting down on the chest and looking in earnestly into the manly countenance of her friend. "'Mostly,' said Sam, at last finishing off with a drop of port water and smacking his lips. "'Sometimes it's all I can do to get it eaten. Other times I'm not so hard-pressed. It's never got over without interruption, more or less.' "'Are breakfast and tea as bad?' "'Not quite,' replied Sam with a laugh. "'About breakfast time the traffic ain't quite so fast and furious, and I takes tea at home.' "'How long are you here at a time?' asked the inquisitive Gertie. Twelve hours, my dear, and no time allowed for meals.' "'Surely you must be very tired?' "'Sometimes, but they talk of shortening the hours soon. There's a want of signalmen just now, that's how it is. But what good fortune has sent you here this evening, Gertie?' "'I want to ask you about a ring, Sam.' "'A ring? What? You ain't going to get married already, are you?' Gertie replied by bursting into a hearty fit of laughter. When she had sufficiently recovered her gravity, she revealed her troubles to the sympathizing signalman. "'Well, it is a perplexing business. What was the old woman doing with such a ring tied up in such a queer way?' "'I don't know,' said Gertie. "'Well, it ain't no business of mine, but we must try to get hold of it somehow. I'll be off duty at six, and your dad'll be passed in a few minutes. After I'm free, I'll go up to the shed and have a palaver with him. There he is.' As he spoke, the bell was rung by his signal friend on the left, replied to in the usual way, and in a few minutes the chimney of the lightning was seen over the top of the embankment that hid a bend of the line from view. "'Put your head out here at this window and be ready to wave your hand, Gertie,' said Sam, placing the child. The flying Dutchman came on in its wonted wild fashion, and for a few seconds Gertie saw her father's bronze and stern face as he looked straight ahead with his hand on the regulator. John Merritt, cast one professional glance up, and gave a professional wave of his right hand to the signalman. At that instant his whole visage lighted up as if a beam of sunshine had suffused it, and his white teeth, uncovered by a smile, gleamed as he flew past and looked back. Gertie waved frantically with her kerchief, which flew from her hand and for some distance followed the train. In another moment the flying Dutchman was a speck in the distance, its terrific crash suddenly reduced by distance to a low rumble. Evening, Jack, said Sam, as his successor or comrade on the night shift entered the box. Come along now, Gertie. We'll go to see your father. He'll be up at the station in no time, and won't take long to run back to the shed. So saying, Sam Natley assisted Gertie down the long iron ladder, by which his nest was reached, and walked with her to the engine shed, which they soon reached. They had not waited long before John Merritt's iron horse came panting slowly into its accustomed stable. As there were at least twelve iron horses there, all in stages of being put to bedism, and some, like naughty boys, were blowing off their steams with absolutely appalling noise, it was next to impossible for Gertie and Sam to make known their difficulty to John. They therefore waited until he had seen his satellites in proper attendance upon his charger, and then left the shed along with him. When the case was made known to John, he at once said, "'Why didn't they apply to the clearing house, I wonder?' "'Ah, why not?' said Sam. "'Nurse doesn't know about that place, I think,' suggested Gertie. "'Very likely not, but if she'd only gone and seen anyone who's known anything about the line, she'd have found it out. 
However, the parcel's pretty sure to be somewhere, so I'll set some inquiries afoot when I go into town tomorrow. Good night, Sam. Good night, John, answered the signalman, as he turned off in the direction of his own dwelling, while the engine driver and his little daughter pursued the footpath that led to their college. Sam Natley's residence was a very small one, for house rent was high in that neighborhood. There were only two rooms in it, but these two bore evidence of being tended by a thrifty housewife. And truly, when Sam's delicate but partially recovered wife met him at the door that night and gave him a hearty kiss of welcome, no one with an atom of good taste could have avoided admitting that she was a remarkably pretty, as well as thrifty, little woman. "'You're late tonight, Sam,' said little Mrs. Natley. "'Yes, I've had to go to the shed to see John Merritt about a diamond ring.' "'A diamond ring!' exclaimed his wife. "'Yes, a diamond ring.' Hereupon Sam related all he knew about the matter, and you may be sure the subject was quite sufficient to furnish ground for a very lively and speculative conversation, during the preparation and consumption of as nice a little hot supper as any hard-work signalman could desire. "'You're tired, Sam,' said his little wife anxiously. "'Well, I am a bit. It's no wonder, for it's a pretty hard job to work them lovers for twelve hours at a stretch without an interval, even for meals, but I'm getting used to it, like the eels to be in skin.' "'It's a great shame of the company,' cried Mrs. Natley with indignation. "'Come, come,' cried Sam. "'No treason. It ain't such shame as it looks. "'You the company have just been introduced in a new system of signaling, "'and they haven't got enough of men who understand to work it, you see. "'So of course we've got to work double tides, as the jack tars say. "'If they continue to keep us at it like that, I'll say it's a shame, too. "'We must give them time to get things into working order. "'Besides, they're hard up just now.' There's a deal of money thrown away by companies fighting and opposing one another, cutting their own throats, I call it, and they're awfully hard used by the public in the way of compensation, too. It's nothing short of plunder and robbery. If the public would claim moderately, and juries would judge fairly, and directors would fight left, shareholders would get higher dividends, the public would be better served, and railway servants would be less worked and better paid. I don't care two straws, Sam, said little Mrs. Natley, with great firmness. Not two straws for their fightings and juries and dividends. All I know is they've no right whatever to kill my husband, and it's a great shame. With this noble sentiment, the earnest little woman concluded the evening's conversation and allowed her wearied partner to retire to rest. End of chapter 17 Recording by Dal de Pinaroles.